0: is uh on November 1st, 2016 on thursday at 7.28 pm I'm Kevin Williams this is the LDS Live podcast Don't forget to send me an email kevinw w at ldslipodcast.com check me out on uh, check out the podcast on facebook at the at uh, Podcast.com. also if you want to listen to the podcast on a computer on the website go to http colon slash slash www.ldslivepodcast.com. A uh, few ways. By the way, we're on iTunes and uh, probably a bunch of other apps. I know I listen to my podcast on an app called Downcast, and I know you can get it on po- the podcast app on your iPhone and all kinds of apps, So, uh, and, of course, iTunes. Anyway, we have uh, Brian Hyde with us. Brian Hyde is a talk show host on KSUB in Cedar City, Utah, now, I met you, Brian, back in 2005 at a George Witt seminar. Do you remember that? I do. And uh, you always impress me with your knowledge of radio. Now, for those of you who don't know, George Witt is was an underground university. Are they still around?
1: I think that uh, George With actually has gone the way of the dinosaurs now. How I think d- it, was, it was peacefully put to rest uh, probably about the end of this last summer.
0: How do you feel about that? I know you are a big fan and I I like the concept.
1: It's it was a remarkable school
0: mm-hmm. and
1: um there unfortunately there was a lot of very unnecessary drama that attended the the end of that institution, but um I will tell you I went there not because it was an accredited school or because it uh it would give me access to to other academia institutions but simply because it was the, the best, uh, most accessible liberal arts education that that I could uh, receive. And, and I still maintain it was probably the best decision I've ever made.
0: Yeah, uh, we're going to get to the interview, but I really like how George With did do. For those of you that don't know, George With was a college in Cedar City, and then it went to Salt Lake. We're not going to get into all the drama and all that, but... Um, It was a college that uh, was based on the Jeffersonian model of education. Now, maybe you were this way, Brian, but I was one of those people who thought homeschooling was absurd. Did you think that?
1: I've been a fan of homeschooling for quite some time. So Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um, I was either indifferent and then I was a really big fan of it.
0: Yeah, well, my prejudice against homeschool came because I knew some homeschoolers, or I knew some kids that were homeschooled, and they were really awkward socially. But then I listened to Oliver DeMille, the president, uh, former president of George Wood College, who's now defunct, um, his philosophy of education. And I thought, well, the only way you could really do this is to homeschool your kid. And actually, hearing it for the first time, most of it made sense. Um when did you come around to homeschooling or I, I guess you never had an issue with it though
1: No my wife and I actually considered it about the time we started having kids we figured it was a it was an option that we would avail ourselves of and, and we've done everything from homeschooling to private school to charter school to public school and there's a place for all of them but
0: mm-hmm.
1: we we really like the the idea of letting our kids learn or become lifelong learners. And, and yeah. they can start at a very young age and hopefully continue until they take their last breath.
0: Yeah, well, we'll uh, get into that in the interview. Let's uh, let's officially kick off the interview. Um, you have been in radio for, what, 31 years, I think? 32
1: years this December.
0: Oh, wow. Now, let's go back uh, chronologically here. You were born where, in Twin Falls?
1: I was actually born in Salt Lake City. Lived there in I oh. about 12 years old.
0: Okay, and what made you, I obviously, from what it sounds like, from what I've been hearing on your broadcast, sounds like you had a pretty good childhood. Tell us a little bit about that real quick.
1: Yeah, I was I was adopted. You know, oh! So my parents adopted me at uh, four days old. They just got a call out of the blue saying, we have a little boy if you're ready for him. And so they had literally just a couple of hours to get ready, <laughs> and, and they came and, and got me in um they 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 were wonderful parents, incredibly selfless people. my sisters were also adopted and um so i, I always uh, i I always knew it you know from the time I was very little. my parents made sure I understood that I was adopted and so it was it was never a shock or you know, it never never came as a surprise to me
0: did you ever meet your biological parents
1: no, I haven't although i'll confess as I get a little bit older um particularly i have uh I have a desire to to meet my biological mother, mm-hmm. and and primarily the reason I want to meet her is just simply to uh, to tell her you made the right decision in in giving me up for adoption, and mm-hmm. I applaud her for her courage and, and selflessness in doing that. I I can't imagine it would be an easy thing. I have six kids of my own. I can't imagine you know what life would be like without any of them. So I I think about her each year and. Um, I, I suppose when the time is right, uh, you know, have a chance to, to deliver that message to her.
0: Do you know much about her? Or, uh, we do, you don't have to go into... No. Okay.
1: Um... No, the, the records are, are very tightly sealed from that time period. Utah adoption law, um, when they said sealed, I mean, they meant it's, it's really sealed. So barring some kind of life-threatening illness and the need to, you know, get some kind of genetic information, um, they're, they're just not going to open those up.
0: How do you feel about that? Because I can see both sides of that.
1: About, uh, about the Utah you know, records? The be,
0: yeah, because I, cause I, I could see where both sides would be coming from.
1: I think it would be nice if, if they could find a middle ground. Um, look, I, I can totally understand, and, and I, I accept it. The fact may be, maybe this was a chapter in my biological mother's life that she really doesn't want to revisit. Yeah. And so... If if her desire was to keep those records sealed, then I think the law should probably work in her favor. If, however, she had changed her mind and said, I wouldn't mind making that connection, and I wanted to make that connection, I wish there were a mechanism whereby um, that access could could be granted with the consent of both parties.
0: Wouldn't it be funny if she found out that you were on the radio and maybe she's heard your broadcasts?
1: I've wondered about that. Not gonna lie, I would. I wondered if if that might uh, <laughs> if that might be the case.
0: Anyway, so you were adopted. I did not know that. I I guess I don't know everything about you. And I'm a podcaster. Um, what else? Uh, what else was significant about your childhood and all that? Um,
1: I I loved growing up in Salt Lake, and I thought I would die when my family moved to Twin Falls, Idaho. When I was 12, my dad was a pharmacist and had accepted a position at a brand new drugstore up there. Unfortunately, he was diagnosed with cancer um, before we could complete the move. So we ended up moving to Idaho without him. He stayed in Salt Lake to continue receiving uh, radiation therapy and to recover from cancer surgery. And um, I I loved Idaho though. Um, I thought I would die leaving Salt Lake City. But when I got to Idaho, I learned 12 year old boys up there didn't just have BB guns. Everybody had their own 22 and quite a few of them had their own motorcycle. (laughs) I realized uh, there might be some benefit to this after
0: all wow they're uh they're not into gun control or president obama's version of gun control apparently i wonder if that's changed
1: well, it's a very uh, twin falls was maybe twenty thousand people at that time but it was still a, a very rural and agriculture based community so most of us were out carrying a shotgun and and hunting ditch banks and cornfields you know when we were 12 years old we we just went out, we pheasant hunted, we fished, we deer hunted. Um, there was a lot of uh, lot of sportsman opportunities. And and it was just, you know, for us to walk down the street, um, I remember at 15 years old riding my bike with my twenty-two across my shoulder to go outside of town and, and go shooting. Nobody so much as blinked an eye.
0: Wow. You think they could get away with that today or not?
1: Oh, no. No, no. I think a kid... With, with any kind of a visible firearm would probably um, have members of law enforcement waiting for him down at the end of the street.
0: I have to tell you, in 1993, my parents gave me a BB gun for my birthday, and I was shocked because the last thing I could vision was me being a blind person shooting a gun, although I've done it before, but I just did not think my parents would ever, ever trust me with a, a gun as a blind person. And this is back in 1993. Like your parents were pretty cool. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I, I think, if you, did, you, did you get the chance to, to go and shoot your BB gun and learn how to shoot
0: it? I did, yeah. I didn't do it much, but uh, yes, my dad took me out shooting a few times, yes. Um, And I remember telling my parents, uh, if Bill Clinton has his way, we're going to have to send this back. And my mom said, well, Bill Clinton hasn't had his way yet, so don't worry about it. <laughs> Um anyway nice. anyway uh how did you get into what made you decide to get into radio I um,
1: it was on a whim I mean I listened to the radio growing up from about age 8 I was tuned into KCPX in Salt Lake City I grew up listening to Lynn Lehman and uh Woolly Waldron and of course the Battle of the Records every night with Skinny Johnny Mitchell so I was pretty dialed into you know, what was on the radio. And when I moved to Idaho, I took that love with me. Never really believed that I would ever work in radio, but I was uh, right out of high school. I was attending college of Southern Idaho on a speech scholarship. And one of the guys who I was in class with was a part-timer at KTFI AM and just mentioned to me, listen, uh, they're hiring some weekenders. Maybe you should go apply for the job. So I did. And they said, well, we'll train you. And if it works out, we'll hire you.
0: what frequency was, was uh, K KCPX on? I I know it was on ninety eight or ninety nine point no ninety eight point seven, but obviously this is in the seventies. I know it was on a different frequency back then. Thirteen twenty. It was thirteen twenty a.m. Oh, okay. So what? Uh, so K T F I for those of you who don't know, that's on a.m. twelve seventy. And what were yep. they? A light hits and local talk back then, and uh, I assume you got your. That was back in what? '84.
1: Yeah, that was December of 1984, and actually, what what KTFI played was uh, they played my parents' music, so it was adult standards. Yeah. Cliffie Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, but but they mixed a few adult contemporary songs, in. so you hear some Dan Fogelberg, and um, you know, by the time I left there, um. It was a pretty interesting mix. I mean, you could seriously go in one hour from cool in the gang, one of their softer songs like Cherish, to Frank Sinatra.
0: It sounds like uh, that's how it sounds like they kind of copied the format, or KMGR must have copied that format. It sounds like it was probably a Music of Your Life format.
1: Yeah, it was. It was definitely aimed at an older adult audience,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know, my my first most dedicated listeners were primarily little old ladies in oh. long-term care facilities or nursing homes. Wow. And, you know, the, the thing that that really taught me was, um, you know, as, as much as you want fans when you're on the radio, and that's every aspiring DJ wants, you know, to build his fan base, I learned very quickly that the reason they listened to me wasn't because I was an awesome DJ. They listened to me because they were lonely. And, you know, when they would call into the station, they had their favorite artists and If I played Ronnie Millsap, for instance, there was one little old lady who would call and thank me profusely because she was sure that I had played Ronnie Millsap just for her. Truth was, he just came up in the rotation, but I I always got credit for, you know, playing her favorite artist.
0: Wow. So you were at KTFI, and then where did you go?
1: Um, KTFI was my first part-time gig. My first full-time gig, I was hired by 1310 KLIX, which at the time was the... Country station in southern Idaho. I think back when they, Country was good, they, by the way. Yes. They, they had, an honest to goodness, 70 share on Arbitron in the mornings. They, they were just huge. And I, I didn't stay there for very long. I was there for maybe a couple of months and ended up going back over to KTFI where I was working nights. And um, often wonder what might have been different had I stayed at KLIX, but That was actually the beginning of of their decline from being the top station. And and at that time, FM really began to take over the market. And um, they they never were quite the player that they had been to that point.
0: Okay. Uh, Sorry, folks. We're going to get a little nerdy here about radio for a while because both him and I have – well, you're in radio. I've been in radio. Uh, When did KLIX change to full-time talk? Uh, That would have
1: been early 90s.
0: They, okay. They
1: quick enough to snag Rush Limbaugh. Mm-hmm. That was uh, another little station I worked at, K A R T, in Jerome, Idaho. Where they were the first ones to to grab Limbaugh, and uh, K L I X never was very happy about that. But um, they, they ended up carrying a big, if powerful.
0: Yeah, they ended up carrying Rush yeah. eventually because they got bought out by Clear Channel. But carry on.
1: Yeah, well, and, and what had happened was eventually K A R T, I believe, went Spanish language. Yep. And. Um, and so KLIX grabbed up Limbaugh. But that's when, that's when talk radio was, was still just beginning to catch on. Rush was making some pretty big waves, particularly in the early 90s. And, and by the mid-90s, of course, you had G. Gordon Liddy and uh, Ken Hamblin, the Black, Black Avenger, and uh, Coast to Coast AM. So it, it was really starting to take off. And then consolidation, yep. you know, more, more or less ended. And, um, well, it, it continued to evolve.
0: KART was interesting. They carried Rush, and then didn't they carry, for the rest of the day, the People's Radio Network, if I recall? They did. Yeah. Yes, they actually
1: had a country music morning show that would play until 9 o'clock, and then we would do a local hour, which is actually where I got my my start in talk radio, doing a show called Perspectives on there. And then it was Rush Limbaugh and then Chuck Harder for the people.
0: Now, did they carry, who did they carry after Chuck? Did they carry Jerry Hughes and some of those other people that worked at PRN?
1: I've got to try to remember who they had. I know Gil Gross was one of the hosts that they carried.
0: Oh. And
1: I want want to say maybe Bruce Williams, but my my memory's a little bit fuzzy. This would have been, you know, probably a good 20, 22 years ago.
0: Now, just uh, real quick, and then we'll uh, get into what's happening currently, because we've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, You might be interested, when I lived in Boise, I could actually get KTFI and KART during the day, believe it or not.
1: See, KTFI, I would believe, that was a nice, powerful 5,000-watt signal. KART was a 1,000-watt signal, yeah, it, so it, it could be a little problematic.
0: It was fuzzy, but I was able to get I had to turn my radio up really loud. But we actually had a Suburban where it came in loud and clear in Boise, believe it or not. It was weird. Um, But so what made you, you obviously did, uh, and then you obviously worked at Z-103 and a bunch of other stations. So what got you into talk radio as opposed to music, and how did you end up in southern Utah? Well,
1: ironically, when I was uh, getting my start at KTFI, I was convinced music radio was the way to go. I used to listen to WNBC. We could pick them up off the network, and I would listen to them in queue while I was supposed to be doing my own show just because I wanted to hear, you know, some of the really top talent. I mean, when Howard Stern was, was still fairly new and Don Imus was on top of his game, um, Soupy Sales, you know, there, there were some really amazing jocks. And so I was, I was resolved, man, I'm going to be the next Casey Kasem. And I distinctly remember the words coming out of my mouth I would never do talk radio. I couldn't imagine something more boring. But you flash forward about oh, almost 10 years, and there was a, there was a host who was leaving KART, who had been hosting a talk show, and they asked me, "Would you fill in in the interim till we can find somebody to to take this show?" And I reluctantly agreed. All right, I'll do it. And look, I'll I'll confess as a music jock. I was mediocre. I was okay. I could fill the spaces, and I ran a tight board. But I never really became a personality until I started doing talk radio. And that was when I, after after a few months of doing talk radio, I went, oh, I really like this. And I think I found where I want to be.
0: So that was back in, what, 94 probably? Yep. Okay.
1: Yep,
0: late 1994. Because I remember KART, I don't know if you know this, they used to carry a show called, a, uh, I want to say AM Idaho. Oh, no, Idaho Today with uh, John Dwayne. Do you remember that? It was brief.
1: I don't. I don't know if that was before or after my time there. It
0: was before. It was back in 93. I don't think it lasted very long, though. It was uh, on, carried on KIDO. And then KART and KSCI picked it up, and I don't think it lasted very long. It was on KIDO for years and years. But anyway, so uh, let's fast forward now. So what brought you to southern Utah?
1: Well, after I had been working at uh, KART for a couple of years, so this would have been early 96, um, I was starting to make a lot of connections within talk radio. I was programming KART, and I was starting to meet some of the syndicators and some of the talent who were doing um, you know, satellite shows, and and I I knew at that time. I just I could feel that um, my ticket to do something with my career was going to be with talk radio. And I caught wind through a guy by the name of Jim Smalls, who was programming uh, Sam Melo's uh, Shade Tree Mechanic show uh, on on the radio. He had contacted me and said, "Listen, I understand there's an opening in St. George, Utah." You know, maybe you ought to look into it because I've been talking to him and kind of pumping in for information about how to go about syndicating so I went down to St. George interviewed for a program director position on the 890 KDXU and I I'll admit I didn't really want the position because it seemed like about three times the responsibility for a pretty lateral move in pay but my heart said no this is the one you're supposed to take and and so I, I went ahead and accepted the position. My wife and I moved down there in August of 96. And it uh, it just started a a really fun phase of my career, one which I, I hope is, is still continuing at this moment.
0: Yeah, you know, sounds like you have a lot going on right now. Now, your talk show, we're going to get into some other things here quickly, although I do want to get back to the future and radio later in the podcast. But your talk show is not a typical talk show. It is one that is very thought-provoking. You start out by reading thought-provoking essays and then people call in. Am I correct? That's at least every time I've heard your talk show. You usually start out with an essay, unless you have a guest on.
1: Yep. I, the idea behind the talk show is not to throw red meat. And I, I want to be clear, I've, I've been through that phase in my career. I know I know how to build an audience by throwing red meat and speaking in bumper sticker slogans, and it is an effective way to build a talk radio audience. But um, incidentally, you know, probably three or four years after I had moved to St. George, and it was, it was really enjoying a, a growing following there on KDXU, I encountered um, some individuals from George With College in Cedar City. And in my association with them, I started to learn a little bit more about uh, the principle of statesmanship. Statesmanship goes far beyond um, just stirring people up, you know, getting them riled. Statesmanship is about becoming a problem solver and developing leadership and, and inspiring people to to bring out the best, most authentic version of themselves, you know, as, as it pertains to running their lives or engaging in, in civil government. And so that, that was the beginning of a very profound shift in my approach to talk radio.
0: Oh, yeah, and so did you, how did the transition go? You started out being a Sean Hannity, then I, would do, did you have some issues to think over uh, to change well, your talk I'll tell, show? I'll tell
1: you and... what the, the turning point for me was um, when I became acquainted with George Witt, um, I learned the difference between issues and forms, and I, I'm going to say forms in a different word, and that is principles. Um, Issues are the things that people talk about and we argue over, and social media media is very issue-driven. They run primarily on emotion, but when you get down to the bottom of just about every conflict that you can see, there's some principle or another that's at stake. And what I was learning through my association with George Witt was to learn what those principles were and how to identify them and then how to persuade people to consider the principle rather than simply staking out a position of, well, I'm a conservative, so I have to think this way. It's much more about um, clear, independent thought than trying to take some kind of a partisan stance.
0: Do you think a talk show host, a talk show like yours, would work in the Salt Lake market or work on the premier radio networks or some of those big networks?
1: Um, I think it could work. Um, this depends on, it depends on when people are ready for it. Frankly, I believe that, that we are at a point right now where there is a need for, for the, the approach that I take. And I'm not the only one who takes this approach, but my goal right now is not to convince people that I have the answers and not to convince them that um, I'm on the right political side of a given question. My number one goal is to provoke thought actually is to stimulate thought but often to do that you have to provoke people by confronting them with with questions or ideas they may not have considered so at the end of the day what they do with that information is really up to them but as a host and as someone who wants to promote independent thought i like to question some of the things that people have accepted and and held as but well, we know that this is the way that it is is it really and, and ask them to defend that help me understand how that holds up in light of maybe some other ways of
0: looking at it. Yeah, one of the things I like about your talk show, I sometimes listen to you to get a break from Sean Hannity and the rest, but let me just ask you, and then we're going to talk about something else and come back to radio. Do you think uh, Sean Hannity and some of these others, you know, we hear that they're angry, although I have to admit I like Sean Hannity right now more than ever, but do you think that, a lot of these talk show hosts believe everything they say when they throw out red meat, or do you think they're just doing it for ratings? Uh, what do you think about that? Because I've wondered that myself sometimes.
1: Um, it's hard to—it's hard for me to question their motives. Um, I, I'm looking more at what their actions produce.
0: Uh-huh. If,
1: if they are trying to build an audience of fear-driven or enemy-driven people, then you play to those fears, or you, you play to their their hatred of their enemies and i'm not naming any names here so please don't think i'm singling out sean hannity or anything that's that's what a lot of hosts do um my approach differs from from the enemy driven approach in that i am trying to encourage people to own their own world view and and to base it on what they stand for knowing who they are and what they stand for as opposed to simply um defining themselves by who they're against.
0: Well, who is uh, your favorite national talk show right now? Or do you have one?
1: I'm going to confess something here, Kevin. I don't listen to very much talk radio.
0: Yeah, you're so probably I, pretty... I, yeah, that's understandable.
1: Part, part of it is the fact that I, I'm, I'm busy and I have uh, I have other things. I write on the side, I teach on the side, and so I, I've got other projects that, that keep me busy, but... Um, there, there are commentators that I, I really enjoy. Um, John Stossel has always struck me as, as a compelling commentator because he, he is a master at helping get people thinking without preaching to them and telling them, you've got to think this way. Ben Swan, the television personality, another guy who I think uh, I think both of those guys are, are excellent journalists. I'm not a journalist. I'm more of a commentator, but um, I can't think of any, any talk radio host that I'm aware of um, probably Joe Carey in Salt Lake City, I think, follows a similar line of thinking to what I do and that is uh, this is more about, it, it should be more about bringing light, not that we have all the answers, but getting people to, to see things in a more complete sense than they did before. I hope that makes sense. It's not, it's not like telling people you're wrong because you don't think this way. It's introducing them to the idea that on this issue or on this particular problem, there may be some aspects of this you haven't encountered or, or seen before, and it would it would enlarge your understanding to look at it, whether it changes your mind or not.
0: Yeah, one thing, I, uh, let's deviate from radio. We're going to come back to it, though. You've interviewed some really interesting people. The main reason I wanted to have you on the show today, on the podcast, uh, there's been uh, a big uproar. ...about the Bundys. I think a lot of information has been skewed by the press. I'll admit I'm torn on a few things, but I'm not going to throw the Bundys under the bus because I've heard way too many good things about them, even though I'm not sure that I agree with their tactics. I know that they meant well. Uh, Let's talk about the issue at hand right now and then we'll go back in time. Um, they have, well, Ammon Bundy and his crowd have been proven innocent, but they're not out of jail yet. What is your prediction on the trial in Nevada? Then we'll go back in time a little bit.
1: Um, that's a hard one to call because I didn't, for a minute, expect that they would get a complete acquittal.
0: I didn't More either. In
1: fact, it, if anything, I, I felt like the deck was so hopelessly stacked against them that it would take nothing short of a miracle. And And I won't shy away from suggesting for the jury to see through what the government was doing there and to see through the prosecutor's case and say what you have charged them with does not match up with what their actual actions were Uh, and to go ahead and, and properly acquit them because of that, that is nothing short of a miracle.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I wasn't expecting them to get off or maybe the couple charges, but I wasn't expecting them to get off entirely either. Uh, in fact, I really think uh the judge uh Anna J Brown was uh, definitely on a power trip. I'll just say that for right now. Uh what 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 did you think?
1: She definitely seemed to have a preordained conclusion that she wanted to see that that trial come to. And It it should be noted, and and maybe some of your listeners understand this. If not, I'd really like to emphasize the information that has come out from one of the jurors, juror number four, makes it very clear that the acquittals were not necessarily the product of jurors who were saying, we agree with the Bundys, or we are endorsing what they did to take a stand against what they saw as federal overreach. They Mm -hmm. simply said, as, as they looked at the charges and looked at how overcharged the Bundys were. If they had been found guilty, they were facing decades in prison. And that's exactly the reason why the federal prosecutors went after such heavy charges. If they had tried to charge them with something like simple criminal trespass, a misdemeanor, the jury probably would have convicted them. But as it was, they, they aimed so high, and they just came in there with this triumphalist attitude, and the prosecution was just so certain they were going to grind these cowboys into the dust, and it turned the jury off. They they saw it as as you know David versus Goliath, and they weren't about to give Goliath a pass just because he was so sure of himself.
0: Yeah, um, are you worried about the trial in Nevada? Um,
1: uh, less than I was before. I mean, in, in either case, that you know, I'm sure that, that the Vets are going to try to do something different, because they are, they are not happy. They're, they're already playing the victim card. Oh, this decision, it makes things so much more dangerous for every person out there. When the, the whole point was, there was no danger. There was no threat to life or limb or property. The the most aggressive, dangerous, and deadly behavior all came at the hands of people who worked for the government. And, it, and this is one of the things that I think also informed the jury was the idea that there were at least nine and as many as 15 federal informants out there at that refuge. And so the, the case of, well, look how dangerous these guys were. When it came down to looking at the actual defendants, they were much more harmless than, than the public had been led to believe and what the media had reported. I think that that is going to play well in, in the sense that um, the, the prosecution has been seen exaggerating. overreacting as they did in Oregon and so that will likely play into you know what happens there in Nevada but I wouldn't say they're out of the woods by a long shot I mean this they they're up against a system that has virtually unlimited resources and um, most of all spite in its heart to to put down those who would stand up to it
0: well, uh, and by the way, back to the informants, uh, we don't know who half of the informants were. I think we only know what, who three or four of the informants were? I think they, they figured out about nine of them.
1: but Oh. Um, that, that, but there were still others that, uh, that were not uh, named. But that's why I say it's known that there were at least nine, but there could have been as many as 15. Uh, the one thing that was very clear, the number of informants, actually outnumbered the number of defendants in that trial in Oregon.
0: Yeah. And the th- disturbing thing is we don't know the names of all the informants. So we don't, how do we know who the defendants were, And unless you were there at, at uh, the standoff? How do you know who the defendants were versus the informants?
1: Well, I know one of the, one of the informants was a, a guy, um, I, think, I think he went by the name of Killman, and he, uh, he came in there in the last days of that occupation and set about setting up a firing range at the refuge and training uh, some of the occupiers in combat uh, skills and, and combat shooting. And that was used by the prosecution to so show, see how dangerous these guys were. But when it came out, but yeah, he was your guy. They weren't doing that before your guy showed up. So that, that looks a lot more like entrapment in a genuine case of, see, we caught them doing something really bad.
0: What do you think would have happened if the Bundys uh, were, in fact, in prison? What do you think that would uh, do to the rest of the ranching community out there?
1: Well, I think the cat's out of the bag as far as uh, them getting the the word out about abusive behavior, behavior on the part of certain federal agencies. Um, you know, let's let's walk it back to 2014, and what happened that that kind of landed the Bundys in the spotlight in the first place? You yeah. have Cliven Bundy, a guy whose family has been ranching there on the Arizona Strip for you know generations, going back into the 1800s, and there came a point about 20 some years ago where Cliven realized that uh, the, the Bureau of Land Management was not operating in his interests, but instead was was taking rights that he had purchased, I'm talking um, rights to water, <clears throat> rights to forage, rights to access that range, and was converting those rights into a permit-based privilege. They made him apply for a permit and pay for a permit and then would turn around and use the fees he paid to try to put him out of business. And so there came a point where he realized, Man, he's watching dozens of other ranchers around him being put out of business, in the same manner, and he finally just told the BLM, um, I withdraw my consent to have my lands managed by you, and, you know, and I want to make clear, he's not claiming the lands as his own, he does not hold title to those lands, but he has a very clear and forcible right to the water and to the forage on those lands, because they were first put to beneficial use by whomever he purchased his rights from, or whomever, you know, purchased them from the person ahead of them and on down the line. And what keeps those rights alive is the fact that they are being exercised, they are being asserted, and they're being defended. And the, the BLM just essentially kept racking up fines and telling them, well, if you don't pay these fees, we're going to add on this penalty. And so in response to a perceived question of revenue, they had not received. Not a crime, but just, you know, you owe us this revenue. They sent a militarized task force of 200 men who were armed to the teeth down there to confiscate his cattle and to to steal them under the color of law as part of a trespass effort. But it wasn't that that really rallied the people to come to his aid in April of 2014. It was the idea that they came down there with overwhelming aggression. Um, One of his sons, Dave Bundy, and his family... We're just watching the one of the convoys come down the mountainside and filming with his iPad. And they had uh, a couple of vehicles race over there, rifles leveled at them. Dave was beaten down into the dirt, handcuffed and dragged away and detained. Now, he was released the next day with no charges filed. But that's a really disproportionate response for people who are peacefully standing around. They closed numerous trails. They closed every dirt road. And if anybody wanted to protest, they set up a couple little free speech areas They posted marksmen and spotters on every high spot. And, and I want you to know, I saw this with my own eyes when I went down there. And it, it felt like stepping across some invisible line into a weird, Americanized version of North Korea. I've never felt anything like that before in my life.
0: Wow, well, yeah, I remember... Uh in fact, you're the first one to... Well, I heard about the Bundys through you. Uh, until that point, it never made the national news. Uh, you were doing your show on uh, AM 1450 at that point, and you were joking around about a free speech zone, and this could be the only one left. And I thought, wow. Uh, and then I realized what you were talking about. And I remember calling in, because I knew that there was going to be a standoff. I just knew... Because of what I've read at Ruby Ridge. And I, I don't know if you remember, the, you remember this, Brian, but I called in and asked, uh, where's Bo Grites when we need him?
1: Right, right. Well, and, and keep in mind, there, there, were, there were other confrontations. There, were, there was a protest as, as the BLM was bringing a backhoe and a dump truck out that had been tearing out infrastructure, water tanks, and pipes and improvements that Clyden had paid for out of his own pocket that benefited not only the cattle, but every living creature on that land. And when Ammon and others stopped this convoy and demanded to know what is in the back of the truck, they suspected that perhaps they were killing cattle. Um, They had guns pointed at them. They were threatened. They they were tased. They were thrown to the ground. They had dogs sicked on them. And it was just a, a very disproportionate response of force and a very militaristic approach to what was ultimately just a question of revenue. And uh, the call had gone out that, uh, you know, we've got this armed task force here, and, and they're already talking about, you know, this is going to be the next Waco. And that is what rallied hundreds and hundreds of people from across the country to stop what they were doing and come to Bunkerville. And that's where it all kind of came together on the morning of April 12th of 2014.
0: I have a theory. Remember, this all started on a Saturday night at about eight o'clock. Or, uh, let's see, about seven o'clock Pacific time, didn't it?
1: Um, which, which part started?
0: Well, the the okay. Well, where they took the where they were taking the cattle away and probably oh, doing it, what you said, yeah.
1: It actually uh, it actually started earlier that week. I mean, that whole week. Um, you know, they they had come in with contract cowboys. And they were, you know, coming in to take the cattle, and they'd set up a a compound. And when I say a compound, I'm not trying to just use hyperbole. It was a militarized, you know, operation. It was like a military outpost. Everywhere they went, these guys traveled in a very tight column with their police lights flashing. And um, they always had about four men to a vehicle, all of them armed with assault rifles. And I assume we're talking real assault rifles, real M4s. And it was just an overwhelming show of this military-type force to come down there and, and uh, basically intimidate the Bundys and everybody else into not protesting, not interfering with what was being done. And the, the problem came about when they just they kept harassing people, Kid went down to check his beehives, and, again, he's accosted at gunpoint. Um, look, it's one thing, if you're searching for a dangerous fugitive, it's quite another to have federal agents pointing guns in people's faces, loaded weapons in people's faces for, for simply stepping off the uh, paved road. It, there's just no call for it. It was so heavy-handed. And so the morning of April 12th, I traveled back down there again and, and met with Ammon Bundy and Ryan Bundy. And um, basically what we were doing with them was trying to, to visit with them and help them gain control of the narrative, because the media was all focused on guns. There's people there with guns, oh my gosh, it's such a thing. Uh, But the tension was incredible. And look, there were people on the government side who were clearly spoiling for a fight. There were some guys on the militia side who were clearly spoiling for a fight. I believe there were also good people on on both of those sides who did not want to see any kind of bloodshed. And I'll just tell you, for the record, um, it was nothing short of divine intervention that kept that thing from going sideways when they finally did go to get those cattle.
0: Yeah, tell us a little bit about that, uh, whatever you want to share, because I think that's pretty important.
1: Um, I know that uh, the, the media cast this story as just, it was, uh, it was Cliven versus the Fed. It's this crusty old rancher versus the federal government. Um, but that is not the whole story there was a spiritual dynamic to whatever that conflict was there that goes far beyond a rancher and an out-of-control um, bureaucracy. It, uh, it gets down to the root of what proper government is supposed to be doing and, and what, uh, what moral truth is as it pertains to freedom. And, and I'm going to liken it to the American Revolution. When, when the American colonies stood up and asserted that there was a time to, to resist the British efforts to keep them from governing themselves, they didn't do it because they were a bunch of sore losers or because they were radicals or just looking for a fight. They did it because they understood that the moral truths that all men have God-given rights and that there are things that government cannot do to abridge or infringe upon those rights. And if it does, they have an absolute right to either alter or abolish that government and to set up a system that will protect those rights. That's the gist of the Declaration of Independence right there. And I'm just, what I'm asking you to consider is, is it possible that some of those same principles were what was at stake that day at Bunkerville? And when when I tell you that, uh, you know, my experience there, I know what I felt, I know what I observed, and then the experiences of of, of people who I've talked to who were there that afternoon when they went to retrieve those cattle, um, they they coincide very strongly that there was divine providence at work in preventing that from turning into a a bloodbath. There's information has come out, there's information in the hands of the the defense team right now for the uh, guys preparing for trial in Nevada that uh, they have body cam footage that shows those those some of those task force agents joking and plotting as to who would get to shoot whom, and and saying, I want to shoot this guy. Nope, I have this on him. Well, can I at least shoot his horse? Sure. And and I mean, they're joking about who they're going to kill, and it's it it, it makes the, the indictment that was handed down by the feds seem like uh, like very cheap theater when you consider uh, some of these guys were were very willing to shed blood because they felt like we have the law on our side and that's all that matters. They'd forgotten that moral and immoral are not necessarily the same thing as legal and illegal.
0: Well, um, yeah, I'm actually very surprised that uh, you did not carry your gun with you to the standoff in Nevada. I, I thought you would have been one of the first people to have a gun with you. What made you decide not to carry a gun?
1: Um, that was just a personal um, a personal hunch, a personal feeling
0: that uh,
1: I knew because I had been down there two days before and I knew what the um, I, I, I knew that this was a very militarized looking zone and um, I knew the potential was was very great that there could be trouble. But uh, uh, for me it was just nothing short of that was that was my act of faith. That was me saying essentially to God, I will trust you to protect me, and I will not take a weapon. The interesting thing was there was a group of probably 8 or 10 of us, maybe 12, who met up down there to meet with the Bundy brothers, and all of us independently had come to that same conclusion. We all felt that, you know what, we would be better served to trust God to protect us and and not to take any firearms. And I'm grateful that we did that because, you know— no, As far as I know, none of us have been ever questioned by the feds. None of us have ever been the subject of indictment. Um, I, I think that, that was a very wise choice.
0: Were you scared not to take your guns? I, I, would have, I would have been. The first thing I would have gotten was a gun if I was in that situation.
1: No. Um, like I say, this, and this is going to be hard for people to understand, but um, there was a spiritual dynamic. There, that uh, the only way I can think of to put it is um, it became very, very clear to us while we were down there that the Lord is part of the cause of freedom. He was at the founding of this nation. He has been throughout its history, and he absolutely is the author of liberty. And um, ultimately, the, the realization I came to is um, i spent a lot of my life trusting, you know, that, well, if things get bad, you know, we've got our guns. I'm trusting the arm of the flesh. But I recognized after my experience down there that um, the the place where I really needed to be placing my trust was in God Almighty. And Ammon echoed those kind of words. Um, he, he kept saying, brethren, we've got to calm our hearts and remember who is really in charge here. And I think you have seen that same attitude with him throughout this whole Um, Oregon wildlife refuge occupation and even to its aftermath um, his, his faith in God is just strong and I remember him saying months ago as he was being interviewed in jail he said there will come a point where our freedoms will be restored and he says when it happens it will be clear that the hand of the Lord is responsible for it and I thought about that when that when those verdicts came down last week
0: let me ask you: Since this is an LDS podcast, we will get off topic a little bit. Do you think these freedoms will be stored uh, before Christ comes or after?
1: I don't know. And and Ammon didn't uh, didn't try to put any kind of a date or anything like that on it. He he just noted that uh, there would come a time when they would be restored, and he was speaking of his, his his brother and you know all the others who were affected. He said that uh, they will be restored, and and I understood him to be saying you know one.
0: In the Lord's time, it will happen. Uh-huh. Well, let's uh, talk about um, a couple of directions I want to go with this. Let's talk about the standoff in Oregon uh, because I, I'm not kidding when I say this. Uh, I kind of feel I think I have a taste of what you felt, even though I've I never went to the standoff in Nevada for various reasons. Number one, it was hard for me to get to, and a couple other reasons, but I was certainly, I remember getting my cell phone that day during the standoff, April 14th, 2014, and I remember asking the guy behind the counter, have you heard of what's happening to the Bundys yet? Because I was in the midst of getting a new cell phone. I didn't know what was going on. The person I was with uh, getting my cell phone, uh, well, let's just say they're a little bit different than me politically, so I didn't dare bring it up. But nonetheless, um, I watched the standoff in Oregon. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about that four hour standoff um, where the FBI was outside the federal building and Michelle Fury was on the phone. I think I got a
1: taste.
0: Yeah, yep. Um, I think I got a taste of what you felt because at the very end. Oh, probably about the last 30 minutes of the standoff as I was watching. I really felt the Lord's Spirit come over me very strongly, and I'm sure you would have too.
1: Well, I know it's hard for people who, who may not have spoken with uh, Ammon Bundy or Ryan Bundy or um, LaVoy Tinnikam personally. They'll probably find it pretty um, difficult to... To understand this, most of them, what they know, has come to them through some mainstream media narrative, and and I'm mm-hmm. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but that narrative is hopelessly compromised and distorted to portray them in the least favorable light possible. I will tell you, as someone who has spoken extensively to all three of these men, and and has had the chance to really talk with them, and um, you know talk to them about their motives and what they're trying to do. Um, Even though I questioned, and in some cases was like, really guys, are you serious? This is how you want to go about it? There is no doubt in my mind that these guys were doing what they felt um, the Spirit of God was directing them to do. I I believe that they were humble, and they are humble men, Um, and I I truly believe they were not acting in their self-interest. They were acting in the interest of the Hammond family, and and others who have been under that boot of, of federal abuse.
0: Why do you think I felt the Spirit of the Lord uh, the last 30 minutes of that standoff in Oregon?
1: Um, I'll go back to what I said earlier, because the cause of freedom is something that the Lord is very much involved in. I mean, I'm, I'm not ashamed to tell you, Kevin, Jesus Christ is the author of liberty.
0: He mm-hmm. and. and
1: there, there will be no success in any movement towards liberty if he is not included as a part of it. Um, the American Revolution, their, their unofficial motto was "No King, but King Jesus," and I think it's, it's essential that, that we understand um, God loves for His children to be free, but, but freedom requires our ability to self-govern and our ability to to obey Him, and to um, to have the courage to do what's right when it would be easier to do whatever we want to do or whatever our our urges or our appetites are telling us to do.
0: Well, let me ask you this. Um, uh, Let's talk about the church as it relates to this. Then I want to get into what the Bundys and the Lavoy Finicum are like in person. Then I want to touch a little bit on the habits Then we'll talk about radio and wrap this up but uh, were you bothered at all by the church coming out and condemning the Bundy's actions in Oregon
1: yeah it was it was sad because it was very clear that uh, the church PR department which which wrote that press release um, was operating on incomplete or insufficient information now that, you know I, I recognize they brought one of the brethren probably signed off on it but I think they were much more concerned about bad press but did not have a, a clear view of what was actually happening there um, it, I know it shook those men who were there at that refuge to their core to think that they might lose their church membership and they, they thought about it and they prayed about it and the related to me he said um, we came to the decision that we will make it very clear. We are not acting on behalf of the church. We are not acting at the church's behest. We will take ownership for our own actions and we will accept the consequences if they come.
0: Yeah, I, I've always wondered uh, since that came down, the uh, condemnation came down. What I, I've wondered what the core of the twelve thinks of all this. Do you have any idea? Do you have any insight?
1: Nope. Nope. I have to wonder what they're thinking after the acquittal, if, if for oh, yeah. some taking a second look. But I, I don't know what they're thinking at this point. Um, you know, I, I hope that, that cooler heads can prevail and that as more information becomes available, you know, that that people may soften or or even change their, their point of view. But, you know, there, there's nothing that takes the place of being able to go to the source. And I was blessed enough. To, to be friends with Ryan Bundy for at least the last 10 years. Um, I met Ammon Bundy there at Bunkerville in 2014 and then interviewed him quite extensively afterwards for a book that I was preparing to write. And then LaVoy Finicum came into my life, um, I guess in June of uh, 2015. And, um, you know, you talk about how you felt the Lord's spirit in the last 30 minutes of, of that uh, effort to to bring those last four people at the refuge into custody. Um, I will tell you, Lavoy Finnegan, when he came on my show, um, you could feel the Lord's spirit when that man spoke, and I'm not speaking this for myself, other people, many of my listeners have told me the very same thing, that there was there was a humility and there was a power in what he was saying that uh, they had not expected. He was a good man. He definitely did not deserve to die.
0: Yeah, do you think uh, they killed him on purpose because they thought it was going to end the standoff because he was, well, appeared to be the leader?
1: I know that uh, there was tremendous exaggeration and there was a lot of demonization of what was going on at that refuge that that is not based in reality. And so when a bunch of frightened Oregon state troopers shot him to death on that night, they, were, they weren't shooting Lavoie Benetton, they were shooting some monster, some character that had been created for them by their own intelligence and by political leaders and by the media, which was fanning the flames and talking about how dangerous and threatening this all was. You know, the, mm-hmm. the thing is, just a few days before, they had been shaking hands. Ammon and Lavoy had been shaking hands with these FBI agents. They had been talking to leaders they were on their way to go visit a sheriff in a neighboring county they were going to law enforcement they weren't fleeing from anything but there were there were the governor of oregon and others had said we've got to you know bring a resolution to this and so the authorities were the ones who in spite of there being no violence whatsoever on the part of those protesters they created an ambush in the kind of dead man's roadblock To where there was absolutely no room for error, and then when Lavoy gave them a technicality, well, his hand moved, and we thought it was a furtive movement. They shot him to death based on this caricature of, well, he's a domestic terrorist, which it it should now be clear he absolutely was not. I'm just wondering when will when will there be some accountability for the unnecessary taking of this guy's life?
0: I can't help but uh, think, and uh, it's out of my jurisdiction, but I can't help but think uh, the people who uh, the I don't know who shot Lavoy. I thought it was an FBI agent. Whoever it was, the person's it was name. Two, it was two Oregon State troopers. Okay. The FBI I...
1: shot at him and missed, and then denied that they shot at him. So there's some there's some deception on their part, but he was killed by state troopers from Oregon.
0: I can't help but think they're going to have uh, to answer to something in the next life, do you think?
1: Oh, absolutely. None of us escapes justice in the eternal sense, and I'm, I'm positive, And, and they, may, they may even now be starting to realize that, uh, you know, those individuals who pulled the trigger may be realizing that, okay, technically the law was on their side. Technically they were found, you know, to have been justified, but morally i am confident there will come a day if it hasn't come yet it's coming they will hang their heads in shame and recognize that they took the life of a man who posed no threat to them and they did it based on lies and fear that was fed into them either by their higher-ups or by the media or a combination of both
0: yeah i want to talk about a couple things real quick uh Let's talk about uh, the personalities of Lavoie Finnegan and the Bundy family. What are they like in, in person? You hit on it briefly, but uh, let's go into more detail of what they were like in person. I've never met any of them in my entire life.
1: Lavoie was one of the most down-to-earth, sincere and humble individuals that, that I've ever met. Um, I mean, he's, he's a, he was a very dynamic individual in the sense that um, he was an authentic character he wasn't putting on airs he wasn't playing a cowboy he was the real deal but he was a man of, of surprising depth and I, I very nearly underestimated him he had contacted me asking if I'd like to interview him about a book he'd written and I get author interview requests all the time so I was kind of tempted eh, and they'd just blow this one off but the way he had written his letter the respectful tone um, I just thought I'm going to give it another look. And as I got talking with him, I had called him and set up the interview. And as I talked with him and realized, oh, he was there at Bunkerville in 2014. Then I was like, I want to talk to this guy because I want to see if, if he had some of the same spiritual experience that I had there. And, and he had. And just a, just a really positive man. He, he just kept saying, every time I saw him, he'd say, we live in such an exciting time. We were born for this time. I mean, he was he was not the monster that, unfortunately, some people portrayed him to be. And it's, it's beyond tragic that, that his life was taken. Ryan Bundy, I've known for the longest. Um, Ryan can be stubborn. He can be bullheaded. He's, he's a very um, strong individual, very firm in his beliefs, but he's also extremely well-read. Um, I mean, the, the notebook he used to carry around with him was actually a three-ring binder Probably three inches thick, and just tons and tons of handwritten notes. Um, the man studied things out. He didn't just shoot from the top. Um, Ammon is just a genuinely good, humble man. Um, I, I I don't know that I've met very many people with the kind of humility that this guy has. Um, and and I, I say this with the understanding that his wife had related, he and his brothers have, have all had significant positive impacts on the prisoners that they're incarcerated with as they were awaiting trial. And this is coming from, this is information that was given to her by some of the prison guards who were saying, man, these guys have been such a positive influence on these other prisoners. So hopefully that speaks a little bit to to the kind of character of these guys.
0: Yeah, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the podcast is because there's so much information out there, and I myself... uh, have been, have felt torn about things. But let's go to, I want to get uh, philosophically with uh, LDS doctrine because this comes up and this is an issue I struggle with. Um, as you know, the 12th article of Faith says, We believe in being subject to king, rulers, uh, presidents, rulers, and magistrates in obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. And uh, I don't mean to sound like the liberal press here, but Clive and Bundy, and uh, well, yeah, Clive and Bundy basically, and I don't mean to say this in a demeaning way, thumbed their nose at a law. And so, where do you draw the line with the 12th article of faith and not obeying, honoring, and sustaining law? Because I think some of us might have to deal with this kind of thing in the future.
1: What it shows me is that there is a very clear moral duty that each of us has to be able to know the difference between moral laws and immoral laws. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, technically, if in Nazi Germany or in Nazi-occupied Europe, you were the guy who was turning in anybody who was hiding Jews from the authorities, you would have been on the right side of the law. Morally, though, would that have been the right thing to do? Nope. So there there are higher laws that can apply, And, and... You know what what the founders did in in breaking away from britain um you know we're, we're taught at least in the LDS church that what they did was good and was necessary because it set the stage for them to craft the united states constitution which we believe and i would echo this belief it was was in in part inspired by god but they first had to turn their backs or withdraw their consent from bad laws and um, I'm not going to speak, you know, generally say, so everybody should do this. I'm just saying that we, we need as individuals to be able to make that, uh, that kind of discernment for ourselves. And as long as a person's behavior is not uh, aggressive, then I would say that they're probably in the right. If they, um, they, I think they can sum their nose at a law as long as they're doing so peacefully. And, you know, I'm just going to point out, in the case of the Bundys, in the case of the boy II, None of them raised a weapon or threatened anybody with a weapon. They have the moral high ground here. And you can't say the same for for those who are operating in the government's behalf.
0: Yeah, I I guess the question I struggle with, uh, with with what the Bundys did, or some would argue didn't do, um, I guess what I wonder, and it's just me getting philosophical, uh, I guess when you obey honor and sustain the law, I uh, the reason I asked where do you draw the line, well, taxes. I don't like half of what my taxes go to, but I pay them because it's the law and I don't want to be in jail. And I feel like I have way too much to do to be sitting in a jail cell. Um... And I wonder if we all have this mentality, oh, I'm just going to obey certain laws of the land and disobey others. At what point would that become an anarchy? And I'm not trying to be one of those bleeding-heart liberals out there, but I think it's a fair question.
1: No, it it is a fair question. And again, it, it presumes that if there are good laws, then it stands to reason there are bad laws as well. So at what point would a law be so egregious that you would have no moral obligation whatsoever to obey it? Yeah. And if you you can't answer that question, then it's time to think a little more deeply about what are your core values? Where does your moral compass point? Because it's it's one thing to say, I will not be bound by a bad law or obey a a harmful law, but that doesn't make you a lawless individual if you are still, you know... um, living other laws. In fact, the most important law, you know, which is love the Lord and love your neighbor.
0: Yeah. Um, now, does it bother you, and we're going to get back into radio after this, does it bother you that uh, the core of the Twelve and people like that don't preach politics at General Conference like some of the brethren used to back in the 50s and 60s? Because I personally would love it if some of the people in the corner of the twelve would start preaching the Constitution at the pulpit. Yes, I understand the church is now under 501C3, has been for decades, so I don't see that happening anytime soon. But do you wish uh, some President Benson's would evolve in the Quorum of the twelve and start preaching politics in conference? No. Nope.
1: They've got their They've got their plate full. Their job is to redeem the dead, proclaim the gospel perfect the saints, they have lots to do so um, you know, politics unfortunately just poisons most everything it touches so I'm, I'm okay with them not dwelling on political stuff now you notice though, most things that get politicized um, now are starting to go after churches and starting to, to be politicized to the point where well now you know, I think one of the big questions we're going to see is when will uh, when will gay marriage become so politicized that they have to perform same-sex marriages in the temples? Yeah. It's not going to be the church leaders that will be instigating that model. It will be activists who will be trying to force them into it. Like.
0: Well, I think the way to solve that is just... Uh Make sure that the church members get married civilly, and then get married in the temple. I think that's coming, don't you? Yep, that's. I I can see that happening.
1: And but, by uh, the way, I,
0: they do that in Europe as well.
1: Yeah, I think. Uh, I think we're in for some really interesting days ahead. And my, my best advice to to anybody who wants to be able to find peace is make sure that uh, you're focusing at least as much on knowing who you are and what you stand for, and particularly your relationship with your creator as as you do the political stuff.
0: Yeah, good point. Um, I just, uh, I don't know, I'm I'm longing for the day where, it would be interesting if President Benson were to come back from the dead, what he would tell us. Any idea?
1: No, I think he left enough writings and enough uh, information. We should be able to draw a pretty informed, you know, conclusion of <clears throat> what he would have found acceptable or would have counseled us to do. Um, if we didn't listen to it then, I don't know that anything he would say now would necessarily change people's minds.
0: Well, well, uh, you know me. I used to be a Democrat. I'm sure, yeah, I told you that. Uh I still have some very liberal leanings, but I also know when the government has overreached its boundaries, and clearly, in this case, regardless of what you think of the tactics, uh you may not like Clive and Bundy, you may not like his tactics, but let's at least agree that the government went way too overboard. I think we can most of us can agree on that, don't you think? I mean, the oh, judge yeah. in Portland was clearly on a power trip. We don't have to agree with the Bundy's tactics, but we we must agree. I think most of us ordinary people would agree that uh, the judge acted far out of bounds, and the teasing that went on with Mark Munford was completely out of line. Yep,
1: yep. I think we're we're at a point right now in our um, political situation and in our our society. WHERE A PERSON CANNOT MAKE A STAND FOR WHAT THEY BELIEVE IS RIGHT WITHOUT RUNNING AFOUL OF SOME OFFICIAL RULE, REGULATION, OR LAW. AND THAT DOESN'T MEAN THEY'RE AN EVIL PERSON. YOU KNOW, a, AN EVIL PERSON SETS OUT TO HURT OTHER PEOPLE INDIVIDUALLY. BUT TO, to MAKE A STAND, AS M. BUNDY DID, AND AS, as, uh, as DAD DID, um, IT'S, it's GOING TO RUFFLE SOME FEATHERS. YOU'RE GOING TO BE CALLED NAMES. YOU'RE GOING TO BE EQUATED TO, YOU KNOW, CRIMINAL BEHAVIOR. Um, JUST REMEMBER, legal and illegal are not the best measure of right and wrong
0: yeah Um, let's get back to radio Um, what do you think the future of talk radio and radio in general holds any idea I think radio is a
1: dying medium but I'm I'm afraid that's a a topic we'll probably have to pursue another time because my my voice is on the verge of giving out um, that's okay. I, I, don't, we... I don't think that uh, I don't think that radio is going to end before I hang up my headphones for the last time, but I think a lot <laughs> of the guys who may be getting into um the guys who are just getting into radio at this point will probably see terrestrial radio go away within their career stance.
0: Oh, that's one of the reasons I don't care about getting in terrestrial radio anymore. I mean, yeah, if I get a job at a radio station, great, but I'm actually having more fun doing this podcast, quite frankly, than I was on a terrestrial radio station.
1: yeah I think I think you're on the cutting edge of uh, of where things are going to go, so having your own podcast you are you're right where you need to be.
0: Yeah, by the way, I do want to talk to you after the podcast, so stay on the line, but uh, real quick, before we end the podcast, what is your favorite part of being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints?
1: Um, the opportunity to to know why I'm I'm here, to know that my life has purpose, and and every other person's life has purpose. But the the peace that it gives me to to understand why I'm here.
0: Yeah, well, that's uh, that's very good. And you actually touched on something I remember. And uh, not to say that other religions don't believe this, they do, but I think we have a pretty good understanding. Um, I remember I was, I must have been four or three years old going into primary. Must have been, a, had to have been a sunbeam at that point. And I remember thinking how did I get here and all that? And then had a lesson on it and it answered a lot of my questions. Now, uh, other religions believe the same, but I think with the Book of Mormon and all that, we have a pretty in-depth understanding. That doesn't mean that we're better than others, but I think we're fortunate to live in a day where we have a lot of information, Uh, not just the Internet, although the Internet is certainly a contributing factor, but uh, the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants, all kinds of things. What do you think? I'm not sure
1: how to answer that.
0: Maybe that's
1: one we can pick up at
0: another time. Yeah, let's end this podcast. Uh, coming up next is Karen Fulmer. We'll interview her on, or I'll interview her on the 15th of November. Uh, Karen Fulmer is the ex-wife of Gene Fulmer. Jean Fulmer passed away, and uh, so I figure to honor Jean Fulmer, I will let uh, Karen Fulmer come on the podcast. And in the meantime, folks, uh, I will talk to you later.